Ephemeral is a production of iHeartRadio. This is a companion piece to our Halloween special, Canon Albrecht's Scrapbook, also available today. If you haven't listened to that episode already, you may want to start there, as we'll be delving deeper into the classic M.R. James ghost story that is the subject of that adaptation. While James is best remembered today as a short-form horror author, in his time, he was a well-respected medievalist scholar responsible for cataloging all kinds of esoteric artifacts. And this connection is apparent in his fiction, which winds detailed descriptions of locations, buildings, art, and ephemera into tales of the otherworldly. While some are imagined, others are very real. The effect is undeniable. The level of detail in his writing imparts an almost documentary quality to the work. The question then becomes, how does one sort out the fact from the fiction? It's actually been quite difficult for a long time for people to separate these things. It's almost close to metafiction in the sense that the real and the fictional are so closely entwined in some of the stories that you can't really pick them apart. Author Helen Grant, herself a writer of ghost stories, has turned a lifelong fascination of the author's work into an interesting project. Whenever she is able, Helen travels to the real places cited in James's stories to see for herself and share with others what elements in his fiction are drawn from the life. In 2004, Helen took a trip to a historic French town near the Pyrenees called St. Bertrand de Comanche, the real-life setting of Kenan Albrecht's scrapbook. She joined me from her home in Perthshire to talk about that trip, the work of M.R. James, where this fascination began, and much more. Do you do a lot of interviews about M.R. James? Um, I haven't done many interviews about him, and not recently anyway, but I've, I've been at a couple of conferences and, and spoken about him. Um, at one of which somebody came up to me and told me in the manner of somebody delivering a great compliment that they didn't know that people who were non-academics could write that well. <laughs> so, so thank you, I think. I'm essentially a writer, a novelist, but I also write uh, short stories as well, short ghost stories. But I guess the reason why you're interested in me today is because I'm a passionate fan of the English ghost story writer M.R. James. I've been a fan of his since I was a kid when my dad used to um, retell the stories to us on long car journeys to kind of keep us amused. So they've always been with me. And some years ago, kind of apropos of this interest, I found myself living quite close to Steinfeld Abbey in Germany and realised that that was the real life setting of one of M.R. James's stories, The Treasure of Abbot Thomas. So I went to visit it and wrote an article for the small press magazine, Ghosts and Scholars, about whether it was like the story is. And after that, I kind of got the bit between my teeth and started to visit his other sites. So I visited um, St. Bertrand de Comange, Vibor, um, and also Marcelli Lahaya, as well as Steinfeld. Will you tell me which stories those those all pertain to? Right. So um, obviously, 
Comage uh, relates to Canon Albrecht's scrapbook, which right. we're talking about today. Um, Viborg relates to a story called Number 13. Um, Steinfeld Abbey, The Treasure of Abbot Thomas, and um, Marsili Lahaya, um, Stories I Have Tried to Write, which is kind of a fragmentary sort of thing that he wrote that's got bits of things that he started on and didn't quite finish. I don't, I know the other ones. I don't know that one. <laughs> well, it's not one of his better known ones. Uh, it's so, called Stories I Have Tried to Write. To Write, yes. Wow, I'm going to have to check. That sounds so cool. Yeah, do check it out because I think, you know, there's an opportunity there for somebody to finish some of those or to actually write something. There were things that he kind of started on and had a good idea and, and, and you know, didn't really go anywhere in the end. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> and you said your dad would retell them to you in, in the car? Is that what you told me? Yes, yes. It, I mean, my father, who's now in his 80s, has some of those stories almost off verbatim, I would say. Um, and he would... <laughs> And he would tell them to us. I mean, a particular favourite was Wailing Well, which um, I don't, I don't know if you've read that one. Yeah, I, well, I haven't. <laughs> it was written by M.R. James to amuse um, a party of, uh, of, of Boy Scouts. And it's set in the same sort of camping area that they were camping in. And it's about how um, there's a well there, which is haunted by some sort of quite unpleasant vampiric type of ghosts. And uh, the boys are told, you know, you may camp here, but obviously you mustn't get water from this well. So, of course, what does one of them do but go to get water from the well? And it's a Garden of Eden type, uh, <laughs> type scenario. Yeah. And, or um, a Pandora's box. Yeah, exactly. But there's, there's a lot of humour in this story, um, which I didn't at all understand when I was a child. So I found this very, very curious because there's some bits, it's talking about the scout troop and about, um, for example, they had a, a life-saving competition where they used to tie up one of the smaller boys and throw him into the cuckoo weir and the other boys had to rescue him. And this particular naughty boy, the one that, that goes and gets water later on, um, used to always pretend that he had cramp or something. And while he was rolling around on the ground, people would be drowning. And it says in the story that... Um, you know, it was becoming troublesome for the school because the parents were no longer satisfied with the form letter that they used to send out saying, unfortunately, your child is dead. And when I was a child, I didn't understand this at all. I thought, you know, how can they be so cavalier? Now it makes sense, but, but then it really didn't. What, how much do you know about M.R. James's backstory? Goodness me, what a question. More than most people do, but a lot less than the experts, I guess, is the answer to that. That's okay. Um, so I know a little bit. I know <laughs> that he was a medievalist scholar, right? Yes, he was. Yes. King's College, Cambridge or something like yes, that? Yes. And, and also um, Eton College as well. Yeah. And I think, I mean, in his time, he was probably better known as a medievalist than, than he was as a short story writer. But now everybody remembers his, his short stories. It was kind of a Christmas thing as well, that there was always uh, a ghost story and that he would read them aloud. So everybody would come around to his rooms or whatever in, in the college and listen to them. Um, That's a very Victorian tradition, the, the ghost story at Christmas. Absolutely. I mean, I think I have heard it said that, um, that a ghost story at Christmas is more traditional than a ghost story at Halloween, in fact. I mean, that was the time of year that, that people associated with ghost stories. So, do you uh, do Christmas ghost stories in your life? 
Yes, but then, I mean, I do ghost stories all year round. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I always feel slightly miffed when it gets to Halloween and everybody's all about, you know, the vampires and, and monsters and stuff. And I felt, well, you know, I was into it before it was cool, so... The thing that really gets me about M.R. James' style is that there's so much specificity about the places that he's talking about, about the, the documents that he's describing, uh, and, 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 the, and the figures in, in documents, you know, like architectural drawings or like the mezzotint, for instance. He's describing, you know, this very specific mezzotint in this specific catalog from this, you know, this specific <laughs> vendor that has like this kind of work and um, and his characters are always so, such brilliant, um, you know, scholars of all this stuff. And they just rattle through all this verbiage that, you know, if if you're not, you know, at Cambridge studying that kind of stuff or, you know, f from that area, you might have no idea or I'm not a Catholic. I'm not a Catholic. <laughs> and so I, I kind of get it from the context clues, but a lot of it flies by. I just I don't have the same. Um, depth of understanding as as he does writing it but it has this pro profound effect of um i don't know making it almost feel like a like a documentary it, it, there's there's so much like reality intertwined with with the fiction that it's like what parts did he make up it is i think it's it's actually been quite difficult for a long time for people to separate these things because in his stories there are some real life locations that are very accurately described. And there are some real life locations that have, you know, terrific errors in them. I mean, for example, in the treasure of Abbot Thomas, he never actually went to Steinfeld Abbey, although I, I have been myself. Um, and so he, for example, had got the stained glass windows as being in the Abbey church, but they weren't, they were in the cloisters. So the ones that he saw later on um, when they'd been put into um, uh, Ashridge house, they didn't actually come from the church, they came from the cloister. So, so that was an error. Some other things, I mean, the, the church at Comanche is pretty accurately described. Um, the crocodile, I don't think, has ever hung over the font. It's actually on the wall. Okay, um, no, we got We have to go back. We have to <laughs> jump right to the crocodile. Okay. So you when did you go to Comanche? Um, I went in, I think, let me see, I've written it down here somewhere. Um, I think it was May 2004. Was it expressly to to check out the scene of Canon Albrecht and rigorously vet all of the information in his story? Uh, yes, it was. Um, I've been. I mean, I I I flew down to um, I think to Montpellier from Germany, where we were living at the time, specifically to look at Saint Bertrand de Comminges. And I met my father, who was who was down there. I think he was staying in Carcassonne or somewhere. And we drove to Comanche. We stayed there a night. We did the cathedral exhaustively. And then I flew back again. I went down specifically to look at that. That's so very much like you're the Denistoon of this story, you realize. Like that's you did the same <laughs> oh, thing that he did. I'm I'm totally gonna get myself in the same sort of trouble one of these days, too. <laughs> because I have kind of a track record of of, of doing this, um, sort of just flying off to look at these places or traveling off to see them. But yeah, that was when I went, was in 2004. Did you have kind of a hit list of the things that you knew you needed to, to see, to try and, to try and find from the story? Um, yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, I really had no idea until I got there whether it was going to be exactly the same as the story. Um, so there was a lot of stuff in the church that I wanted to see. 
But the other question was, there's there's certain other places in the story, the sacristan's house, um, which um, Deniston goes to. Would it be possible to identify that? And I spent quite a long time sort of on that particular quest looking for that. So, so yes, I did have sort of a hit list of things that I wanted to see. Did, um, I think that James himself did go to Cabanche, right? Yes, he did. Yes. Yeah. He went in March 1892. So he only wrote the story like four years later or something like that? Yeah, the story was published three years later in March 1895. But yes, he went there. And um, as it happens, whilst I was in command investigating the place, I um, I bought a book, which I've I've got here. It's it's in French. It's a very um, esoteric book. It's by somebody called Louis de Fiansot Dagos, who is a baron of somewhere or other. And it's called Vie et Miracle de Saint-Bertrand avec une notice historique sur la ville et les évêques de Comange, which means the life and miracles of St. Bertrand with a historical notice on the town and the bishop, bishops of Comage. And this was written in 1854. So although it was somewhat before M.R. James, it was closer to his visit than my visit was, if you see what I mean. So I also used that in the sense of kind of understanding what the place had been been like in, in a more um, kind of a, a separate description from M.R. James's. That book sounds like the kind of thing that M.R. James would mention in a story. Like yes, give the it, long French title. <laughs> it probably would title. be, yes. Um, and it had some fabulous stuff in it. I mean, there's an awful lot of stuff which now I think would seem seem a bit dull, but there was there's some splendid renditions of um of the tombs in, in the cathedral. There was um there was one bit that I'll I'll see if I can find it for you. That there's um there's a tomb out in in uh uh, in the quadrangle outside. And there's a Latin inscription in it, which he translates as, there it lies in its tomb, that rose of the world. Now fouled and withered, it no longer gives out its sweet smell, but that which emits from the dust of the tombs. Whoa, <laughs> pretty macabre. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's splendidly morbid, I think. Can you describe for me the 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 cathedral itself? I mean, is... Uh, maybe just maybe just the town even i mean like the way he describes the town is very palpable in the story like as it uh everything bears the aspect of decaying age something like that yeah and and i think it's it still did to a certain extent at the time when i went to see it um i mean it, it's a peculiar sort of place because um i think though originally i believe it had about a thousand inhabitants it had, I think, about 200 at the time that he visited, and I don't think that's that's much different now. And you have basically this sort of very old town clustered round a little hill, and at the very top of the hill, and it's a small hill, you know, it's not a big sprawling hill, it's a small kind of round hill, and on the very top of it is the cathedral, so you can see it for miles and miles around. And the old part of the town is also mostly very old buildings, sort of stone-built buildings, some of them dating back to the 1500s or whatever, so really old. And so you kind of walk up through winding streets, and it's when you get to the top of the hill that there is the cathedral. And I think parts of it are Romanesque, so, yeah, and I mean pretty old. And then sort of later bits grafted on. So there's a little square in front of it, um, which is very, very sleepy. I mean, I wouldn't say that it was decayed so much when when I visited. It's just very, very quiet. There was a nice little hotel there with kind of some chairs and umbrellas outside, but very sleepy. 
um, and then a kind of uh, a square in front of the church. You go up to the church and, and there's, um, there's a big door with a stone kind of uh, stone archway outside it and a nice carving that you can see on the way in showing a miser being uh, with a money bag being swallowed up by some kind of horrible monster or something. So, you know, a, a nice reminder as you go into church, I guess, to, to behave yourself. And then once you get inside the church, um, it, it's quite an extraordinary place because um, although a lot of churches of that age had um, their rood screens removed, so that's kind of a piece of internal architecture that originally separated um, kind of the, the general public and the, the sort of, in inverted commas, more important people who were taking part in, in the ceremonies. Um, that, that's been removed in a lot of churches now, so you don't often see them, but there there still is one. And in fact, there's an entire kind of wooden church inside the stone one. So you've got this, um, this kind of wooden chancel that was built, I think, by Bishop Jean de Molion. Um, and if you go inside that, it's kind of completely enclosed area made out of polished woods with, with a kind of mad number of carvings everywhere. And there's all sorts of things. There's Adam and Eve, there's, um, there's demons, there's, um, there's skulls, um, there's somebody having his bottom smacked with a bunch of birch twigs. I don't know what that one was about. <laughs> Um, and just all sorts of stuff like that as well. I mean, it's an absolute profusion. You could just look at it for ages. Um, outside that, there's also a massive, great um, church organ um, up against one wall. And that, I believe, at the time that M.R. James visited was in a very dilapidated state. But in the 1970s, it was restored. Um, and they now have an organ festival there every year. So you can go and listen to fantastic church music inside there. Did you get to hear it? Um, you know, I don't think anybody was playing it when we went. I've thought about that. Um, as I say, when it was, it was 17 years ago that I visited. So, so I have to think a little bit about, about some of the things I saw. But, um, one of the things that, that I noticed when I was in there was, um, the acoustics inside. And I think that if there had been music playing, I would remember it because of that. There's yeah. a bit in, in the story where, um, where Deniston is, is kind of thinking about the environment he's in and kind of slightly uneasy about it. And he says that um, from time to time, he can hear sort of footsteps and voices and stuff like that. And one of the things I noticed was that when you're in that church, you can't hear anything from outside at all, nothing, because of very, very thick stone walls. But inside, um, there's such great acoustics that, you know, a footfall sounds like a gunshot. So whatever he was hearing in the story was coming from inside the church. So if he thought he heard kind of rustling and footsteps and stuff, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't from outside. It was something inside with him. He says something like hushed voices and muffled footfalls and all yeah. the strange sounds that plague an old building. Exactly. So that would all have been inside with him. He does call the organ dilapidated too. That's exactly yeah, what he Yeah, I think he does. Yeah. It's a... The wooden church is like inside of the stone church. Is yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I, I'm not an expert on, on, on church history, though. I'm interested in it. But um, I think that it would have been kind of the officials of the church who, who were inside and the choir as well, because there's choir stalls and stuff like that. Um, and at the point where other churches were having to take this sort of stuff out because it wasn't considered inclusive. What they did instead was to put in another altar outside that so that, um, you know, so that it wasn't necessary to destroy anything for people to take part in, in the whole service. Cool. Yeah. So, so, so that is why it's remained intact. 
I'm trying to think if there's any other features that particularly stuck out. There's the um, there's the tomb of Hugh de Castillon, um, which is probably the only really fine tomb inside the church, and that's kind of a, a Gothic thing, kind of white marble. Um, with him sort of lying there in state with a sort of canopy thing over his head and under his feet there's a dragon. I think it's eating a little dog or something, which is <laughs> a bit mean. Um, and that, if anything, might have inspired um, Canon Albrecht's tomb in the story because, you know, that that doesn't in fact exist. Well, uh, 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 what is the, the tomb? You can see the figure? Yes, yes. It's one of these ones that has a kind of a figure lying on top. So it almost looks like there's a kind of um, sort of a table or a box or something rather with carvings all around the side. And then on the top, there's a figure lying there with, I think, with folded hands and kind of a gothic canopy over the top and, and these animals under his feet. Wow. Yeah. No, that's not the, you know, I, I grew up in non-denominational American churches. We don't have those sorts of things. They don't really <laughs> use crosses. Um yeah, that's and 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 one of the things you, you you wrote about in your article is that there's this there's this blending of like um, Christian and Catholic iconography and then uh, like pagan carvings and figures and things mixed in, right? Yeah, and that is that is a very strange thing, and I you know still I find that difficult to get my head around. Um, apparently, Bishop Jean considered himself a humanist. Um, and and that's John he, de Molion, right? Who's feature? Who actually? Fe he's a real person that features in the story. He doesn't feature in the story. The person that features in the story is a fictional member of the family called Ulbrich. But they men oh, I'm sorry, Adam but they Ulbrich. mention him as a descendant of yeah, John de yeah, Molion, right? Yes, yes. But he doesn't. I mean, that that's as far as he features. But but yes, yeah. He was a he was a real person. But um, it, there there are various sort of characters in there including rather weirdly Julius Caesar. I mean, nobody really knows why that is, because um, humanists sometimes considered that pagans could be considered in a way kind of Christian if they had the right sort of point of view, or you could interpret sort of what they said as being, you know, a search for Christian truth or whatever, then, okay, you know, we're going to count the, these good people as Christians. But, you know, Julius Caesar, that was stretching it a bit. So <laughs> nobody really knows why that was. But yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of these images inside the church. I think there's actually the labors of, of Pericles as well. So, mm. you know, it's hard to know how those fit in. Okay. What about the crocodile? I know you, you already brought it up. It's hard. It's hard to miss the crack. And it just, it's just, is a blip in the story. Like he doesn't explain the crocodile at all. Yeah. Um, the crocodile is one of, um, I believe nine crocodiles um, which are preserved in churches in France. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, according to the local legend, St. Bertrand is supposed to have seen off a crocodile which lived in a nearby river and which was picking off all the, the young women of the town when they went down there to, I suppose, to do the washing, whatever else they were doing. Um, and he went down to confront the crocodile armed only with his crozier and kind of hit it on the snout or whatever, after which it became as, as quiet as a lamb. And, and I think they're supposed to have followed him back to the church and died or something like some such thing. Um, anyway, this, this is the local legend. And um, there is in fact a, a fairly modern painting in the church that shows this as well. But in actual fact, it's more probable that the crocodile was originally brought back from the Holy Land as a kind of souvenir. And that's why there was a number of churches in France that have them because of that. 
And I mean, so it's a, it's a stuffed crocodile that's hanging. It says hanging over the font, I think, in the, but you say it's not there. It's not. No, it's actually kind of attached to the wall. Um, and it wasn't particularly close to the font, but of course, I don't know. I mean, I suppose it's possible they could have relocated the font since um, since M.R. James visited. But having looked at the um, the book by our friend Baron Louis, um, the crocodile has always been there since be- in that position since before M.R. James visited. So I don't think that it's been moved since then. I think it's always been where it was. We're talking about a stuffed crocodile. I'm like picturing like kind of like not quite as large as life, like thing that you would win at like a, you know, um, at the midway at a carnival, like kind of cute. That's just what's in my head, like a stuffed crocodile. What is it? Is it bigger? Is it scarier? It, it is quite big. And I mean, it does look like a real crocodile. It, it's not cute looking and it's not that small, really. Um I mean, I remember last year, rather bizarrely, I was staying in an Airbnb in Nuremberg, of all places, and um, they had they had a, a small one in there. But I mean, that was sort of, you know, this long. It was about two or three feet long. But the one in Comanche is, is, is a really big crocodile. Um, and yeah, and quite scaly looking. So <laughs> there is always the question of whether there was a painting like the one which M.R. James describes in the story showing... Um, St. Bertrand liberating a man whom the devil had long sought to strangle. And <laughs> that, that doesn't seem to actually exist. I, I spent a long time in the church trying to decide whether any of the paintings there could have inspired it. And there was a large one behind where the altar now is, which was very sort of large, dark looking painting, but that didn't have that particular subject. It did, did I think, have St. Bertrand, but but he isn't sort of rescuing somebody from a demon or anything like that. So I think that's invention um it's such an evocative phrase because it's like what do you picture for that the the guy whom the devil long sought to strangle yeah um something very gothic Mm -hmm. i really imagine something something quite nasty but also i think the fact that the painting is is very kind of dark and obscure is good because that's the sort of thing which if you saw it clearly would probably just be ludicrous but if you see it hinted at it's quite unpleasant. But I mean, whilst I was looking to see whether there was, you know, it really was a painting like that, I also looked at um, the, um, there's a kind of a big reliquary to St. Bertrand, which is is right behind the altar. And that has a lot of paintings on it. But I didn't think that was such a good candidate. I mean, it does have some of his miracles on there, though not that particular one, but um, there, there's dozens of them. So um, it wasn't one big picture. So, but I, I mean, I looked at it, so... I, I suppose you, your project is kind of finding the line, like where the fiction starts. Right What's there. so amazing about him, though, I, th- I suppose, is that it's almost close to metafiction in the sense that the real and and the fictional are so closely entwined in some of the stories that you can't really pick them apart. I mean, I'm going to veer off Canon Albrecht's scrapbook for a second here and return to um, The Treasure of, Atta- of Abbot Thomas. But at the beginning of that story, there's this massive great long quotation in Latin, which is supposed to come from a particular, a particular book, um, The Certum Norbertinum, I think it is, or something rather from Steinfeld Abbey's library. 
And um, the library has long been lost, but um, very, very early in the 20th century, um, when this story was first translated into German and somebody in Germany um, read, read the story for the first time, they thought that he really had read a book from Steinfeld Abbey with, with this in it. It was so convincing and so, um, you know, the, the language was so right and the title was right. I mean, St. Norbert, who the book was named after, is the local saint. So it was so convincing that they wrote to him and amongst other things asked where he'd seen this book. You know, and, and, and the weird thing as well is that's the story that has all these other sort of errors in the sense that um, Steinfeld Abbey isn't the way that he imagined it. So there's all these sort of things kind of mixed in together. And sometimes it's really, really difficult to tease apart which things, which things are true, which things are imagined. Yeah, I think that, that that's the wonderful thing about them really is, is they are so very convincing, even the bits which, which aren't actually true. It, it, I can imagine this scenario where MRJ is like the end of the day, he's done his whatever his college work and he's sitting there at his desk and he's smoking his half a pipe and whatever. And he's musing about, you know, what fiction projects, you know, what he wants to dream up. And so many of them seem like the starting places. Like, what about like there's this really cool like document or picture or book or like piece of ephemera that like. I wish I could see and I don't think I'll ever get to because I don't think it exists anymore. But like, what if it did? Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think the other thing I, I, I like about them is that there's often a very good internal logic and into the stories. And that's partly because he does use things like that. He uses things that though um, they may be prosaic, they're things like um, paintings and, and documents and, and archives and stuff. You know, they're real bits of evidence. Whereas if you have a story which is much more about people's feelings, you know, like I went into a creepy place and, and you know, I felt uneasy, but I couldn't really say why. Um, that can also be unsettling, but it's unsettling a different sort of way. And I personally, as a reader, I find his use of internal logic is very satisfying. I, I believe his stories. They can sometimes be quiet, but, but I do believe them. they convince me. Uh, quiet is good. Quite as good, quite as spooky. It is. Quiet, quiet gives people anxiety in films and in audio. You don't you don't say anything for long enough. People start to freak out. I think I think it's interesting. I mean, out of all his stories, the one that gives me the whim whams most is one which um, I don't know whether you've read this one. It's called A Neighbor's Landmark. There's no, so I many. I, I was really proud <laughs> of myself that I knew like three or four that you listed off the top and now you're the... the, the no, no, that's fine. But the funny thing about that particular story is that um, it's full of people sort of saying, and then this person told me this. And then they'll say, well, uh, uh, yeah, and, and that person went off and, and found this out from this other person. And, and it's like a sort of a, some kind of Russian doll, you know, you're always going through the different layers. And I think that the whole story is actually being related to somebody by somebody else. And then they're relating that, that they had stayed with somebody and their host had told them something and then gone off to check with somebody else. And that person who they'd gone to check with had related something that had happened to his mother. So, you know, it's getting further and further and further away from actually being confronted by the ghost. And yet somehow, when the ghost appears, it's right in front of you. I don't know how Emma James does that, but it's magical. You think, how can there be all this hearsay and it's still that frightening? <laughs> Breaking I've, all the rules. I've, I've often wondered about that. That, that, that does seem to be, you know, that, that seems like an extreme example of it, but this, this, this Victorian ghost kind of conceit or, 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 or struck, you know, st st uh, structural idea of like, 
a lot of times there's a first person narrator that's telling you a story that was told to them. And within that story, there's like a story that's a piece of the story that's told to the person that's telling the story that's told it to the narrator. <laughs> and that can go. And what you're saying sounds amazing that he just like recognized that and just like took it. I've often wondered why that has been implemented so much, especially in like British Victorian ghost stories and like why it's so effective or if it is so effective. I don't know if you have any thoughts yeah, on I that. wonder whether it, it it doesn't share something a bit with the urban legend because mm-hmm. you know the urban legends that that we still tell now are always like that. They always happen to somebody else who's who's closely associated with us, but not quite close enough that you can actually finger the person that it was. So it's always you know, oh, I had a friend who said her boyfriend's cousin had this happen. You know, it's never actually somebody said, well, it was me. You know, I was there. This happened. You know, there's so maybe sort of an element of that. I mean, another one that I can think of is is Percival Langdon's story, Thurnley Abbey, which um, if you haven't read that, you can, you can read it online. But that is really incredibly frightening. And that is um, that is related by somebody who's saying, um, I think he asks if he can share somebody's cabin when they're on a sea voyage. And the other bloke's a bit like, well, you know, I haven't got your own. Um, and he says, well, you know, I, I can't sleep on my own anymore. And this is why. And then he explains. And um, yeah, so I th- I think it can work really well. It's 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 it, it generates all this that sort of layered storytelling generates all these nice moments in Canon Albrecht because um, all of the characters really are fiercely pragmatic. Like um, you know, like it'll you drop you drop out a dentist story for a second. You're talking to M- and Mr. James is kind of talking. He's like, I showed this picture like to a friend of mine once, and like they're like super sane, like they're super unimaginative. But like he couldn't even he wouldn't let be alone. He wouldn't you know. So um, and the, and also the way that you can sort of detach from the beat by beat the timeline of the plot for a second and be like. We're going to have to describe this part of the photo in a minute. It's also, he's got like the longest descriptions of paintings, uh, you know, just the longest descriptions of single documents. The Mezzotint's another great example of it that I feel like few authors could really pull off. But like, he obviously like has the the cred, the ability to do it and also make it like really compelling as it's happening. Those yeah. the, in in Canon Albrecht, those are the parts that I reread over and over. It's like, cause there's so much in them. And the first time you read, you don't even realize like how much, how many clues and mysteries there are in every little piece of description. I think this is the thing. And often it's the little tiny bits that kind of stick with you. I mean, I think with, for example, another of his stories, Casting the Runes, there's a bit where the evil Mr. Carswell is showing um, a magic lantern show to some children. Um, with the aim of really of ultimately of frightening them off trespassing on his country estate. And he shows them all these horrible pictures and, and, and they're getting nastier as they go along. And then there's one which the children clearly recognise as a small boy walking through Mr. Carswell's estate. And he's pursued, and it says, and somehow made away with by a horrible hopping creature in white. And uh, this thing is never more clearly seen than that. But I think, and, and why is it so unpleasant? And I, I can't even quite put my finger on it. The fact that it's hopping, I mean, that ought to be ludicrous, but it isn't. There's something so unnatural about that. You know, because if it, if it were really kind of, I don't know, a monster or something, wouldn't it be running on all fours or something like that? But it's not. There's this horrible sort of lopsided sort of flopping kind of image of it, which is really unpleasant. 
I, I mean, you have this, like, you have a stack of books behind you, and there's, like, one, the one decoration. You don't have a, a stuffed crocodile, but you have, a, like, a ceramic <laughs> bunny, I think. And so I was thinking big, horrible, scary Easter bunny. <laughs> yeah, Maybe that's, it would be hopping. It's, it's the uncanny, right? Uh, you know, it's it's, like, just, you just can't quite put your finger on it. It's also, it's very, very understated. I mean, when mm. the ghost finally appears in a neighbor's landmark, it said that, um, it's describing how um, how this this old guy's mother always used to have to come back through the woods in the evening with, with the milk that she got from a nearby farm and that she would never send any of the children in case they got a fright because she knew perfectly well what it was in the woods. And, and the narrator said, well, you know, did she never see anything? And, uh, and the other one says, well, she said... Um, only but the once when she came back through the wood on the darkest evening it had ever been. And she, and when she heard the rustling in the bushes, she felt compelled to look behind her and she saw something coming on very, all in tatters coming on very, I think, was it with the two arms held out in front of it coming on very fast. And with that, she ran for the style and tore her, her gown to flinders and getting over it. And we've slightly misquoted that, I think, but, um, but the idea of just this thing coming on very fast, it, it's not running. It's almost kind of gliding. And with the two arms held out in front of it, I think it's reaching for her. But it doesn't say that. If it said, or, you know, it was, it was running at her at high speed with its arms out, that wouldn't be scary. But the idea that it's coming on very fast, that really gives me the creeps. The language is expert. Yeah. It's really good. I love it when there's really long Latin passages. <laughs> that's not a super, I should cut that cut. That's not a very good, super astute, but it just, I don't know Latin, but I just, and especially hearing it read, hearing him as, as audiobooks and things. I just love it when there's all this long Latin. And then it's like, this is what the Latin said. And they can just, <laughs> he could just be lying to me every time. But I just, I completely drink the Kool-Aid and I just buy it. I'm like, oh, I'm, in, I'm hearing some like ancient thing that I'm not supposed to know about. I've got this like esoteric information. It's, it's super well, cool. It's like you're in on this joke or you're like in on this like elite club of like, oh, these are the things that people talk about in like the back rooms at like Cambridge, <laughs> you know. It's funny though, because um, I mean, I'm, I'm one of the few, probably few dinosaurs that, that did actually do Greek and Latin at, at university at Oxford many years ago. Um, so yeah, I can vouch for the fact that, that, it, that the Latin is what he says it is. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I like it when he uses these documents because it adds authenticity to the story for me. And um, I mean, if I can draw a comparison, another person that does this is, um, is Henry Ryder Haggard. His, uh, his novel, She, which was made into a Hollywood film very successfully, um, that begins with a, a whole load of documents like this, um, which is supposedly sort of documenting events over time. And I think there's one of them in Greek and one of them in Latin and something else in, I don't know, old old English or Anglo-Saxon or something. And, you know, I think this is a huge thing for anybody to wade through and modern audiences probably wouldn't stand for it. But I personally like it because I think that it says to me that I'm on this journey too. If I can only decipher these things, you know, I'll understand the secret. And I love that. I think it's great. To me, I mean, haunting, hauntings and, and, extend that into possessions and, and, and other kinds of sort of supernatural uh, uh, phenomenon. I think, it, I, I think of them as very specific to place specific to objects, like 
this was the house that, you know, I lived in 500 years ago and I died here. And this place is imbued with, 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 you know, a sense of me, whatever, a trace of, of my, of me, even though I'm gone. I mean, literally that's true. And then you take it into whatever figurative direction you want, but that's like specific to this place or it's specific to that church or it's specific to that, you know, that photograph or that painting or that, um, and that's really where where it gets me, and that's what you know why I think the level of specificity and this sort of dexterity with which he describes objects and places, and the texture and the palpability of them can be you know it can feed so much into that horror. No, I totally agree, and I mean having 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 visited some of his story locations, uh, I I think that's very true. I mean. Um, they're all very, very evocative places. I mean, even Viborg. And when I went to Viborg to to see the supposed um, site of the story number 13, I think there was a big shop there now. Uh, and they, they were very surprised when I went in. There were some very nice young men. I, I don't really speak any Danish at all. So I had to sort of start off by saying, I'm terribly sorry, I don't speak Danish. In Danish, um, you said that. No, no, no. I said it in English. It was oh, okay. really, really pitiful. And I had to just apologize and say, like, I'm really sorry, but I can I ask you about this? And they were super friendly and super nice. But I mean, it, it, it was a fashion shop now. Um, but in spite of that, the, the town itself was well chosen. You could tell that, that, you know, notwithstanding how it is now, you could still feel the ancientness of it and the history. Um, you know, it, it was a super place. Did, did Kamanj give you the creeps at all? It's not really super creepy in the story. I wouldn't say the town itself. It's, I think like sleepy is the word. I think, I don't know that he uses the word sleep. I think I got that from your article, but I feel like that's the feeling I get from the M.R. James story. I I didn't find it super creepy. Um, It was very atmospheric because we walked around it after dark and because it was so quiet, uh, there was, um, there was, there was, bats flitting through the streets and this sort of thing you could you could see them overhead and you could because the 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 night air was very clear you could hear cowbells from a long distance and yeah you know it was very very atmospheric and I remember looking out of the hotel window um I think we stayed at at Lopidum which is one of the two hotels there and looking out of of the back window and you could see kind of the, the moon above the cathedral and it was very very atmospheric but I I can't say that I felt afraid in any way. I mean, I didn't go into the church and think, well, this strikes me as essentially a nasty place. I mean, I have been into churches which have given me the creeps big time. Um, when we were in France some years ago, not France, uh, Spain some years ago, we went into one, I think it was the cathedral at Girona. And that, um, you know, I couldn't get out of there fast enough, really. <laughs> that that was really creepy. I mean, they had things like a, a, a giant glass coffin with a wax effigy of a dead person inside. And they had this enormous, I think it was an altarpiece or something other that went right up into sort of the darkness of the ceiling with all these sort of tumbled figures carved out of dark wood and everything was just, you know, <laughs> really oh. creepy and gothic. And I, I didn't feel comfortable in there. But I didn't feel like that in, in St. Bertrand de Comanche. It's actually... You know, the church there is quite nice. I feel like there's a definitely like a listener base that will be like, yo, where's that church in Spain? I definitely <laughs> want to go there. <laughs> so who is St. Bertrand? What is he, what is his deal? Um, yeah, I mean, I think he's he was uh, a local guy. I think his main sort of local miracle was the crocodile one. He was Bertrand de Lille-Jordan, who became St. Bertrand. 
And I think that the church dates to his lifetime, the first part of the church. So it's the 12th century. Um, but I, I don't know what his other miracles were, to be honest. I probably ought to know. <laughs> In the church, there's a whole series of, of kind of pictures um, mm. on the altar, which show uh, on his uh, reliquary rather behind the altar, which, which show the various kind of events of his life and stuff like that. Um, so, so yes, in that sense, he's very, very present. Like locally, he's kind of the guy in Comanche, but like at this sort of Catholic church at large, he's not really like a figure that people talk about. Um, no, I guess not. I mean, I guess there's, there's a lot kind of bigger saints, but I mean, locally he's very, very big. I mean, there's still quite a lot of people called either Bertrand or if they're female Bertrand there, even uh. now. Right. I, you met a Bertrand somewhere, I think, while you were there, right? Yeah. Now, this, this, is, this is altogether a bit strange. And this is one of these things which is entirely based on hearsay, but it is the best information that I had. So um, whilst, I was, um, whilst I was touring the cathedral, I um, spoke to the then cathedral guides, whose name were Jacques Morer and uh, Gérard Clouzet. And they uh, had both retired by 2009. Um, I have a feeling that one or both of them may have died by now. And I tried to check that up before, before this podcast, but I wasn't able to find any information about, about that at all. Um, anyway, I chatted with them entirely in French because um, neither of them spoke English or at any rate wasn't going to admit to being able to speak English. <laughs> So there's sometimes a difference. Anyway, I, I chatted with them um, and I told them why I was there. And uh, somewhat to my surprise, they, they had actually heard of M.R. James and they did know about the story because, you know, sometimes you go to locations and people don't know about him because he's a very English writer. So, you know, they may not have. But anyway, they had heard of him. And I said to them that, amongst other things, I was trying to find out where this, this house was that um, the sacristan is supposed to, to be living in in the story. And they identified it as um, the former Episcopal palace that was um, occupied by a family called Rixons, which is a very, very local name there. And they said that um, a painter called Bertrand Rixons, so again, that, that name Bertrand, had painted, um, had, had painted this picture that's inside the church that shows St. Bertrand and the crocodile. Um, and that he'd met M.L. James when he was there and had almost certainly taken him back to, to his to give him, I don't know, whatever the equivalent of a cup of tea is, you know, a glass of cognac or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that was probably the place in the story. Um, but this, this is really not verifiable at all. I mean, I've tried, I mean, since then, things have moved on a bit. I mean, this was, what, sort of 13 years ago or whatever. So, no, 17 years ago, actually, 2004. Um, and so I've tried Googling it and, and tried to find out more about it, but I just haven't been able to. There was another painter of the surname Rixons who was far more celebrated, who was also involved in, in the church and the area, but I don't think that was him. Um, he doesn't have the same first name. I think his name was Jean. Um, and his work, which I've also seen, was far more sophisticated. So I'm pretty sure he didn't do the thing in the church. Um, but this other guy, there's, there seems to be no trace of him. And the only work that he did was local commissions. So I only had the guide's words for it, that this is even true. Um, but on the other hand, there is no better information. I mean, that was 17 years ago. Um, the guys have both retired now. Um, I, I read a report in um, 
in one of the French newspapers about this when when the second one retired, and um, it said rather snarkily that that uh, the place was now being manned by une équipe uh, toute féminise, um, a team that's now been completely feminized because there was there's three women now oh, running heavens. the tourist. <laughs> The, the tour guide's office or whatever. So, yes, yeah, shock, horror, women doing the job. Um, but anyway, so... Did so, either of know, them have a hunted or oppressed manner? Not at looking all. Over their shoulders? No? Not at all. I've seen pictures of them. There's three of them. Um, and the two younger ones look quite cheerful. And there, there was one sort of slightly more disgruntled-looking older lady. But no, none of them looked looked at all haunted. Um, but, but you know, they're a lot younger. So, um, yeah, so so... So that link with these earlier guides, I guess, is, is is gone. I mean, they knew so much that wasn't in any of guidebooks. And um, I don't know. I mean, that struck me as very much kind of what some of the trips I've done have almost been about, is getting the best truth that you can. I mean, if it is never possible to get any more information than that, then that is my my best sort of guess. On, on where the sacristan's house was, but it is based on hearsay. There's no way to to verify it at all. I, I did, in fact, knowing that I was going to be on this podcast, I did try emailing the cathedral and asking them if the painting is still there and whether they could confirm the name of the person that painted it. Because I thought maybe there's a signature on it. You know, that would help a little bit, but I haven't had a reply. So, so if I can put it all together... I'm I'm like totally willing to just buy it. I know you have to do, you have to like have all the evidence and God bless you for it. Um, M.R. James himself goes to Comanche in like eight, what it was 1894 or so. 1892, yeah. 1892. And he's in there and he's looking around and he's maybe dreaming about this story. Maybe he hasn't even thought of it yet. And he sees this painting that's really new then. Right, this of this of Saint Bertrand and the and the crocodile. Well, maybe he doesn't even see the painting. Maybe he just gets chatting to the painter. I mean, I'm not sure when the painting dates to. It's a he's so, he's a contemporary of James, yeah, right? And it's yeah, it's he is somewhere... a contemporary, so he's there. I mean, maybe he's hanging around the square in front of the Hotel de Comanche, looking for some tourist pesta. Who knows? Maybe they're both in there and they're just soaking in inspiration because they both did work, you know, from this place. Yeah. Anyways, they get hanging out. He says, come back. MR James is like, you got some teas, like I've got cognac. They go back to this, you know, a house that's maybe around the corner. Uh, you 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 went to the house where you think Yes, yeah, I did. Um, was. And photographed the outside of it, but I couldn't go in. I asked about it. And um after Bertrand Rickson's died, allegedly the house passed passed to a nephew of his. And um, who'd since died, because this was a long time ago, but his wife was still living in the house. And they said, no, you can't bother her because she's very, very old. So old that was as far as I bothered. could go. Yeah, um, I mean, she's just really old. So, uh, and then what were your, uh, your criteria, or I mean, the criteria from James of like what the sacristan's house needs to look like? Well, it needs to be a stone-built house, though, you know, most of the ones in, in the older part of, of St. Bertrand are, but it also needed to be within walking distance of the other places in the story. I mean, clearly it couldn't be right outside the town walls or anything, because if it was, it would be too far. Right, um, he literally and, walks out the door when the daughter's giving him the cross and everything, and they're yeah. like, please let us walk you home and to the hotel, and he's like, I can see it. It's <laughs> Yeah, like, and they wait, just... I, he, he waves to them from the steps. Yeah, and they just stand outside on their doorstep just watching him. So clearly it's it's close by. But the other thing is that I think there was supposed to be a coat of arms over the door. 
So that kind of narrowed it down a bit. And this Episcopal Palace did have one, but there was one or two other buildings in the town that did as well. So I had to kind of eliminate them or think why it would be this particular one. So, yeah, but the, that's as far as it goes. Okay, no, but I'm going to suppose it, like, I'm just going to suppose all the way through it. So M.R. James beats Bertrand, however, in the town or in the church, they are hanging out, they're kicking it, and they go back to uh, Bertrand Rickson's house, this stone-built, larger, and it's, that's, it's a little larger than the other buildings, right? It has that, isn't that one of the qualifications? Yeah, it's fairly large, yeah. And he's in there having this conversation with this guy, and that's where that's where the 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 dream of this the, of this of this sacristan in his daughter's house is going on. This is where this is the location that he uses and imagines those characters into. I think you don't it, have to say that's true because you, you're not willing to go all the way out of the line. Well, but it, it sure seems like pretty compelling. It's it's difficult, isn't it? Because um, I think on the one hand, when I was writing the article, I have to stick to stuff that has evidence in it. But then there's how I feel about it myself. And in my own eyes, I think this is the candidate. You know, nowhere else was convincing me as being the sacristan's house. And I do think that it must have been based on a real place. I mean, with so many sort of likely places around the town, what would be the, the point or the need of M.R. James to invent a place? I, I feel that it was a real one. You know, most of the time, if he visited somewhere, I think that he did, you know, base it on, at least base it on something real. So, yeah. It does seem to be his track record based on everything we've talked yeah. about. The the hotel that he stays in are, is are, are is that an extant building? Um the the Chapeau Rouge in the story um so far as I could discover is a fiction but that's only in the sense that he called it that. I mean, if he'd stayed, for example, at the Oppidum where we stayed and just called it the Chapeau Rouge. I mean, if I were writing something, that's probably what I would do because you never know whether somebody's going to get annoyed if if you write, you know, if you say I've written this horrific story and it's all written around your hotel. He doesn't really describe so, the hotel except for the red, the what does he call the innkeeper? Bruce, yeah. Yeah. Because it, it's it's obviously a female proprietor because we never actually see see the male there. And there's various points uh, at which I've sort of wondered. The thing that appears to Deniston, you, there's a question mark. Could that be a female creature? Because um, when he hears something laughing, um, he says that he wishes that the landlady would have a more cheerful laugh, which sort of suggests that it's quite a feminine sounding laugh, even if it's kind of grim. So... Yeah, there's a lot of question marks there. That's, I never thought about that connection because when he, so later in the story when he's at home and he's like looking over the scrapbook and he's knocking his pipe, refilling his pipe and just hanging out. And he's like, God, I wish that landlady would la laugh in a more <laughs> cheery way. And then earlier when he's in the church, he, he he has the impression that he hears laughing high up in the rafters or wherever somewhere. I feel like I always interpreted that as female laughter, but I can't remember if he actually says yeah. that. At that point in the story, the sacristan says something like he, he is laughing in the church or whatever. But I still felt that it was, it was a little bit doubtful what the gender of, of, of the creature is. I mean, I wrote another article about, about this particular story it went, in which I went into this in great, great length, trying to identify who, who or what the demon is. But I mean, there's another point in the story at which, um, I think Deniston says that the old man seems very nervous to the extent that he thinks that it seems something worse than, than a termagant wife. 
And that, again, there's this sort of kind of feminine sort of attributes being applied to, to whatever it is that he's frightened of. And that sort of said to me, is this, you know, is this a, a female creature? We don't really know. I mean, later on, when, um, when the sacristan talks about the creature, he says, you know, he was laughing in the church and, and he says, um, I think, was it, deux fois je l'ai vu, mille fois je l'ai senti. So I've seen him twice, but I've felt him uh, a thousand times. But all the French words for demon are all masculine. So it may well be that he only describes it as masculine there because of that. So, question mark. M.R. James's ghost stories generally, which, which I absolutely love, are often quite soaked in a very masculine environment. And, you know, I, I'm just not going to, I don't know, sort of argue with that. At I'm going to enjoy them for what they are. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not as well read on M.R. James as you, but I have read and listened to a lot of his stories. I can't think of a tremendous amount of female characters no, I mean there's some. I mean, I think in the residence in Whit in uh, Whitminster, there's um, there's I think there's Mary, um, and obviously there's sort of people in kind of walk on parts, I suppose. But um, but yeah, a lot of them are told from the point of view of, of men. But like for instance, yeah. I I, lo- I like Algernon Blackwood a lot. He has some shortcut, and he's very different style of horror. But he, I I find that he really doesn't write female characters well. <laughs> When he does, they're often really kind of despicable or dumb or, or, or even just sort of non-consequential, you know, inconsequential. And I don't get that impression from M.R. From James, but I suppose they are kind of like a lot of like male, studious. They're kind of like him. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think um, I don't think any of the characters that he has, generally speaking, are offensively described. I mean in as much as he was writing in the period that he was writing in. So, you know, I suppose if you were going to get into arguing about the fact that, um, you know, that the women have the more gender stereotypical roles or something, but I mean, you know, considering when it is, I don't think that he writes, uh, he writes offensively about any of them, but I think there's a certain, there is a certain kind of distance or sort of handling with kid gloves that comes from somebody that maybe wasn't very confident around them. Well, you just like dropped a bomb and stuff, what? (laughs) It wasn't com- wasn't very comfortable around. No, no, confident, not not comfortable. I think maybe, maybe not, not very confident, confident around around women. Why do you think that? Well, I mean, there's huge, huge, huge debates about his orientation, which, uh, yeah, which I wouldn't really sort of enter in on because I, I'm not an expert enough on kind of the minutiae of his life. But it's just my impression, really, from the way that he writes uh, uh, about the women in the stories that you know they're not. They're not centered in it. Mm. It feels like very much a man's world. Oh, that's so interesting. You were like, just going to just like say that, just move on. I, I, <laughs> I want to dig it because I, I understand. I take your point that, yeah, that, that, that you don't want to wait all the way into this. What is, you know, maybe being an American and, and just not being in this scene, I'd like have only the faintest idea about how much conversation there is going on about MR James. Like, it, I just sort of realized that the, um, well, I, that he's been adapted about a million times up for like the BBC, TV, radio, all kinds of things. The um, A Ghost Story for Christmas, the like annual BBC special. Mm-hmm. Those are like almost always M.R. James stories, it seems like. No, no, that's true. I mean, he's he's incredibly popular here and incredibly 
well-known here. Yeah. Have you ever heard a recording of him speaking? I tried to find one and I haven't had any luck. Um, I don't think I have. No, no. I'm, I'm not sure that there is one. And, and probably now, you know, what will happen is 15 million people will write in and tell us that there is, in fact, one somewhere. But I, I've never heard one. Now. I hope 15 million people. Because <laughs> if 15 million write in, I wonder how many are listening. Um, yeah, please, if you do. I, you know, I feel like he was old enough. He lived, I don't know what, when he died, if it would, it was. In the 1930s. It was the 30s at least. Yeah. yeah. So even if he was on something like radio, there's a probably big chance that it wasn't saved or recorded in any way. But never, no one ever walked up to him with a wax cylinder recording. So he talked for two and a half <laughs> I guess minutes. not. I guess not. Yeah, they should have. They really should have. Who know, yeah, who knows? Maybe in a family archive or something. It's something I would love to hear. Um, th this question has, I have no way to sort of segue into this. So I'm just going to ask it. He makes the, he takes this moment in the story to be like the verger or sacristan. I prefer the later appellation, inaccurate as it may be. Do you have a sense of what the, I, those words are both, were foreign to me before this story. What, right. What? Um, now you've put me on the spot because I can't tell you what the exact, the exact subtle distinction between them is. But I mean, to me, um, a verger just sounds a bit more sort of prosaic, whereas the sacristan sounds a bit more, it sounds a bit more archaic and a little bit more mysterious. But I mean, I'm sure that there probably are slightly different definitions for them if you look them up in in a church dictionary or something. It's probably, yeah, it's probably super complicated to look up. It's not like a Merriam-Webster, like, the verger does it to the left and the sacristan does it to the right. If I type in verger versus sacristan, do I get an article about it? We'll do a whole side podcast. <laughs> no, that's short. Here we go. We'll see if this makes sense. As nouns, the difference between sacristan and verger is that sacristan is a sexton, while verger is one who carries the verge or emblem of office. Right. Okay. But the sexton, I thought, is usually somebody who's a grave digger. Yeah, okay. The sexton is the officer of a church, congregation, or synagogue charged with the maintenance of its buildings and or the surrounding graveyard. Okay, so I think sometimes they might be involved in digging graves as well if it's a smaller church, I guess. That is kind of more mysterious. I, th I, think, you, yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head. We need to talk about the scrapbook a little bit. We haven't even talked about the scrapbook and it's the name of the story. Um, a, it's like, it's just a pitch for a story. Like it's not the sexiest pitch. Like, oh, it's about a haunted <laughs> scrapbook. But the scrapbook is incredible. And it really, it's that thing that I kind of uh, was describing earlier that I I personally feel like is this starting place for MR James, so many MR James story where it's like all these incredible rare thought to be lost you know like your wish list your dream the thing you lie in that he would lie in bed maybe and dream about these documents and <laughs> and uh, 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 of incredible origin all bound together he says he even says that like um ken and albrecht probably like just sort of plundered it all from the church library at some point because <laughs> there's no library in town anymore he just like you know at some point went and stole all the best bits and hoarded them all in a scrapbook. 
I realized that yeah. wasn't a question. I just said, I just was telling you about this. No, question. no, no, no. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting and quite attractive thought, really, because um, one of the things that, that happened in Comanche is um, during the French Revolution, there was a bonfire made of all of the Episcopal papers. So that's one of the reasons why sort of some elements of church history there are, are, are not that well known. Um, and so the idea that somebody might have removed all the best bits and put them in a volume that had been hidden away somewhere is, you know, is a really marvellous idea. And I think there's probably a bit of wish fulfillment in that, you know, the idea that something would have survived. When we're flipping in the story, flipping through the book and he's describing all of these documents, here are 10 illuminated manuscripts from Genesis and do all of those things ring bell? Do you kind of have meaning? Do you know what all of those things mean that he's saying? Yes, I do. But the thing that really drives me nuts is the bit where he, where they take the book out, or, or, or sort of it's, it's wrapped up, and, and he's looking at it, and he, uh, and he's thinking, you know, what can it possibly be? You know, can it be this? Can it be that? Or, or it's probably nothing. It's probably some, you know, su- su- some stupid missile of Plantin's printing or whatever. And I think, yeah. Imagine if I could go to command and find something like that now, you know, because this is the thing. I mean, you know, 120 years later or whatever, that you know, there's there's so much less to discover. Everything's already been taken. So, so yeah, that's so. It's <laughs> a pretty terrible moment. What what does that mean? The mi- missile is planted. What does that part mean? Um, well, you've got sort of different types of um, kind of church books. You've got books of prayer. You've got um, uh, you've got some that have kind of the um, the bits that you would sing and kind of the, the bits that you would sing back to. Oh, thank you. Um, that you would sing back to people during services and stuff like that. So I think you know lots of different types of of, of books. Sorry, somebody just bought me a cup of tea. Which put no, that's lovely. I wish that I had an assistant or whoever that might be <laughs> bringing a loved one that was just bringing me beverages. But yes, I, it's very good actually. <laughs> I don't always get this service. <laughs> so, uh, but the the first one, I don't even, I can't even say it back to you. The first, the, the thing that you just said, the plant is what is it? Of Plantain's printing. Plantain um, is the printer. Um, and I think that um, he was talking about a book that would have been printed in the Middle Ages. And he um, said, that's just, that's just super common. Yeah, yeah. You know, these are lying around all over the place and, you know, I hope it's not that. And then when they've got it, when it's, when the, the um, sacristan is like getting it out of the chest and bringing it to him, he's like, oh, yeah, it's this not is the right shape of an antifinner. No. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is an antifinner? Uh, I don't know. I think that's one of the ones that has um, that has songs in it. But let me have a let me have a look. Let me look that up. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't. Well. Uh, yeah, I did. I didn't know I was going to ask you all the specific church terminology. No, it's funny actually because I, I I kind of refresh my mind on a lot of things. Oh, here we go. Oh, that's not too bad. Uh, an antiphonary is one of the liturgical books intended for use in coro. Um, it's principally the antiphons used in various parts of the Roman liturgy. So I better look up what an antiphon is. I think that basically is just the, the bits where you sing back to each other. Mm. Yeah, a short sentence sung or recited before or after a psalm or canticle. So, <laughs> and it's not the right shape. It's got a specific shape, and he knows that it's by the shape of the uh, of the scrapbook that that's not it. Yeah. And then what, the, do you remember all the, uh, some of the things that he finds in the, as he's flipping through? Um, yeah, the, I mean, 
from from what I remember, just sort of different bits of illuminated manuscript and whatever. I I I can't call to mind exactly what they are. I, I, whenever I read that, I'm always sort of waiting for him to get to the end. <laughs> look at and if Monsieur will turn on to the end, <laughs> yeah, mm. and and see see the uh, the illustration at the back. It's really a hilarious scene to talk about comedy again. And and maybe even more so on like a reread because like you imagine the atmosphere in the room, like the daughter and the sacristan are just like on edge. <laughs> like they're yeah. trying to get someone to take this demon. <laughs> yeah, they're going, buy it, buy it, but trying not to seem too eager. And he's just going so slowly, right? Like it, you could really play it for laughs, it, you know, if you were to adapt it into a TV show, like a sitcom, whatever. Like, <laughs> he's just turning it so slowly. And he's just like a good copy of the whatever. <laughs> you know. Um, well, let's have a look and see what he actually, um, what he's actually looking at there. Do you have, um, do you yes. maintain uh, paper copies of Mr. James stories? Yep. I've got this one here, which is, it's the second or third one I've had, and it's almost falling to pieces because it's been loved so much. Yes, he said that there's 150 leaves of paper in the book, and on almost every one of them was fastened a leaf from an illuminated manuscript. There were 10 leaves from a copy of Genesis, which could not be later than AD 700. And he goes, and there was 20 leaves of uncial writing in Latin, which must belong to some very early unknown patristic treaties. So there's, so there's a couple of adjectives in there that I don't that I don't know what they mean. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what uncial writing is. I think that must be a style of writing. I could look that up in a minute if you like, but must belong to some very early unknown patristic treatise. So it's it will have been some sort of philosopher philosophical discussion on some aspect of theology from the mm. early church, which you know for for you and me is probably kind of Yawnsville, but for M. R. James would have been really exciting. <laughs> What, what, turn on, turn on to the end. How much is that? Is that basically it? He just, it's illuminated, it's illuminated manuscripts. Yeah. Most of it is illuminated manuscripts. And so he gets on and he gets to the end. And, and, uh, first of all, he's got this, this kind of plan that shows, um, the church and the cloisters and it's got sort of various kind of, of symbols inked into it. And, and that kind of, you know, should start make him, making him to sort of smell a rat and thinking of something peculiar is going on. And then he turns over the page and then there's this horrible picture. The horrible picture is interesting too because there's obviously, there's, there's symbolism within it that I don't think that necessarily I have all the reference points. I, I certainly have different reference points than M.R. James did. That So like I know it's, it's King Solomon. I know who King Solomon is, is. And there's five soldiers. One of them's dead. And then there's the figure on the right that needs to be described in a moment. And obviously James describes it really twice in the story in like the same detail, all the way up to like intelligence, not of a more than a beast, but not of a man and um, hair on the fingers and long curled talon nails. And the first thing you see is the massive black hair. And he really does it twice. He somehow pulls off doing basically the same description twice and you're like, don't even remember the second time you were like, no, it's all that stuff again. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I love that first description though, because um, 
apart from anything else, you also you ha- you have that sense with Deniston that you're looking at the picture and you're gradually kind of the nastiness of it is sinking in because when you first look at it, you see all this hair, and it's not until you've been looking at it for a little while that you see what it's covering, which is is really quite nasty. You know, it slowly sort of sinks in. Do you think that there's? I mean. A, there's got to be a particular reason for for that setting uh, amidst King Solomon with soldiers and and the throne and all of the sort of spe- specifics of the scene that he's that he that he he paints there. Yeah, I mean, um, basically, I think what this comes down to is that there's a whole kind of tradition of um, of of legends and stories about King Solomon and demons, and um, one of the um, one of these is a thing called um, the Testament of Solomon, which um, M.R. James was definitely acquainted with that describes some of these interchanges. And um, it, supposedly um, King Solomon built the first um, temple on the mountain, Jerusalem, with the help of demons. And he's supposed to, I mean, there, there's all sorts of legends about this, and I'm not a complete expert on it, but I think he's supposed to have controlled them by means of some kind of, of ring or whatever. And there's also some kind of um, stories as well that later in his life, having kind of lived up until then a, a fairly fairly virtuous life, he had, um, I think, sacrificed to another god or something rather, or converted to a different religion in order to marry somebody else, and at that point fell into the hands of demons. So there's a whole load of kind of weird and slightly apocryphal stories about him and demons. And that's probably why he's been chosen here for this. You know, it's not just any old picture of a demon. There's King Solomon is there with it. Oh, well, that's that someone needs to do an HBO series or something about, I mean, that sounds really <laughs> like a crazy, um, yeah. I mean, apocryphal, sure, surely. Yeah. You, you'd ruffle some feathers with that one. That's not just using the word termogen wife. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I, as I said, I did write another article about this, which is kind of too long to go into here, but it was called um, The Nature of the Beast. I was looking specifically at whether we could say that this was a specific demon. You know, is this just any old demon or, or can we identify who it is? So I looked at loads and loads and loads of stuff. Um, and, you know, it, it's very, very speculative because, you know, we can't really know what was in M.R. James's mind. And I suppose it's possible that he could have put completely random things in, though, kind of based on his other stories. I think it's unlikely that it was really random. Um, but, I mean, the Testament of Solomon, I, I discussed at some length and also sort of various other legends um, about Solomon and the demons as well. Yeah, that's a whole can of worms, really. <laughs> Even the even the idea that Canon Albrecht is this fictional character, but he's a descendant of this real person that who in in this real town, like it's like I suppose that's that's really sort of the aim of your project, right? Like to sort of find that place where it's like he starts feathering in the the stuff that's just from his own imagination. I feel like maybe I hit this point too many times already, but like from my vantage point, it's just like someone that's like from a very different place in a very different era with a very different background, but like also just really loves ephemera and, and, uh, and, and ghost stories. And I think those things are really often very interconnected. It's so compelling. And like, I don't even, I do care what's real. Like, that's why I'm talking to you. But like, I also just, it's, I'm swept away by it. It's, it's such a, it's such a, a, a force, um, Especially hearing out loud, because I don't read Latin, hearing out loud uh, someone read through all the Latin and the French and, and pull it all together 
it, it it's got like a verite quality. Like I, call, I, I think of it sort of like a like documentary and there's a documentary element in it because like you learn about this, this town and this, and this old church that are real, actual real places. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I find this fascinating as well. And it, and it interests me also because I mean, obviously I'm a writer myself and I often use real places and real events, though not usually real people, but you know, real places, real settings, real legends and stuff like that to base things on. And I don't put things in that are random and it's kind of inimical to inimical to my nature to do that. I like something to have meanings. I'm a great fan of Victorian literature for this you know, specific reason. I like everything to be there for a, for a purpose. And I feel as though he feels to me as though very much the same sort of writer. I don't think that he put things in because they were random, which is one of the reasons why I'm interested in teasing these things out. At what point did he start inventing? I mean, with some things like um, the treasure of, of Abbot Thomas, we can know there are there are some books here quoted that didn't exist. But even then, you know, he's he's written a very very convincing kind of pastiche of part of this imaginable, you know, imaginary book. And so you think, well, it could have existed, and it's convincing. So it it feels real. Uh, I find that really fascinating. It's a great trick, and he did it over and over and over. I mean, he did a lot of homework. Yes, yeah, clearly he did. If you like this this sort of writing, though, I mean, other authors that I would definitely recommend are obviously are Sheridan Lefanu, who slightly predates M.R. James and who M.R. James immensely admired. My favourite one is Shalkin the Painter, which um, is is a really marvellous story. I think that that's, that's brilliantly scary. Um, and, uh, there's the child that went with the fairies. Um, there's Madame Crowell's ghost. I like that a lot. That's about a little girl who, um, who gets taken on to be an assistant at a house where there's this very rich and slightly, um, slightly, um, well, it's difficult to tell whether she actually has dementia or whether she's just tormented by her own thoughts. But this very strange old lady who, um, because she's so rich, is constantly indulged, but is extremely frightening. She has these massively great long fingernails and, and wears all this huge amount of makeup in spite of the fact that she's about 105. <laughs> There's others of his that are sort of better known, like the familiar, but the Shark and the Painter is my favourite one. Percival Langdon, Fernley Abbey. If you Google Fernley Abbey, it's T-H-U-R-N-L-E-Y. And as far as I know, that's the only story he wrote, but it scares the bejesus out of me. (laughs) Very nasty story. The other person that I think is is great is is Tom Rolt, who who wrote um, a series of ghost stories under the name LTC Rolt. So Mm. it's R-O-L-T. And I think um, his book was called Sleep No More. And he's slightly later than M.R. James, though not much later. But there's some great stories in that, which are sort of quite Jamesian, but they have got more of a um, an industrial atmosphere. There's one set in factories and canals, and there's a railway one. And those are great because there's an awful lot of people out there doing Jamesian pastiche. And you think, well, that does eventually get a bit old. But he's he's done something that is often Jamesian in flavour, but completely different settings, which is is super. That's really good. You said you had pictures of your trip. I'm not going to yeah, press I you do. for them, but what I can do is send you a whole bunch of them, and any of them that you want to use, you can use. 
One of them, bizarrely, my dad had just taken a candid shot of me talking to one of these old guides. And they, you know, we're, and he looks really grumpy and kind of disgruntled and miserable. He's waving his arms around and stuff. But, you know, I remember his, him as being quite a genial guy. But yeah, there we are in conversation. 17 years ago. <laughs> They're so similar. And then I, I'm going to let you go. That's so similar to the situation that Dennis is in talking with the I mean, you, you, you realize the, the great parallel there now. And now you're talking about this like as if it's a long time ago. Like next, it's going to be me going to follow in Helen Grant's footsteps of looking into the snaps. Yeah, yeah. You said anything, you know, like sort of 20 or 30 years down the line. Yeah, this will be you with your grandkids or whatever. So, oh, yes, I remember talking to that Helen Grant. Somebody might be doing this with your story someday, you know? Oh, uh, well, I hope so. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, what more could one hope for? I mean, yeah, it's something to hope for, isn't it? That's like, that's like being a pretty, you know, pleasant ghost. Like, MR James <laughs> is a, you know, pretty enjoyable ghost in your life hanging around. Absolutely. Helen Grant's newest novel is Too Near the Dead which is a ghost story set here in Perthshire. And it, in fact, uses a lot of the same thing M.R. James does in that it's a mix of real stuff and kind of invented stuff. And there's probably more real stuff than there is invented. You know, most of the locations are real. Available now where books are sold. Yeah, I mean, in the UK, you can get them from Waterstones and Blackwells and places like that. In the States, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, obviously the dreaded Amazon. I would imagine that possibly the book depository or somebody would have them. I mean, in fact, I saw it was listed on Walmart the other day, but I thought it can't really be even on their website. But, you know, there will be somebody. <laughs> there will be somebody other than the dreaded Amazon. Find pictures from her trip and the article that inspired this conversation. He was laughing in the church. A visit to St. Bertrand de Comanche. On our website, ephemeral.show. Hear more podcasts from iHeartRadio by visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.